Hello, Darklings, and welcome to the Nocturnal Mysteries Podcast, a show about the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, and things that go bump in the night. I'm your host, Jenny. Please come and join me. Sit down and place your fingers on the planchette, and let's jump right into this nocturnal mystery. Listener, for nearly four decades, anyone driving down Route 16 near Fayetteville, West Virginia, could see a billboard bearing the grainy images of five children, all dark-haired and solemn-eyed. Their names and ages, Maurice, 14, Martha, 12, Louis, 9, Jenny, 8, Betty, 5, beneath, along with speculation about what may have happened to them. Fayetteville is a small town with a main street that is no longer than a hundred yards, and although rumors would always circulate, no one would ever agree on whether these children were dead or alive. What everyone knew for certain was this. Just after midnight, on Christmas Eve in 1945, Jenny Sauter awoke to the smell of smoke. She quickly discovered that the home she shared with her husband George and nine of their children was on fire. When the fire department arrived, the two-story home had already burned to the ground, and five Sauter children were missing. No one can say for certain what happened to the Sauter's five young children but their family never saw them again. Because of so many peculiar events surrounding the tragic fire, the case has captured the imagination of the public and has become one of the greatest mysteries of the 20th century. George Sauter was born Giorgio Sidhu in Tula, Sardina in 1895 and immigrated to the United States in 1908 when he was 13 years old. His older brother, who had accompanied him to Ellis Island, immediately returned to Italy, leaving George on his own. He started working on the Pennsylvania railroads, carrying water and supplies to the laborers, and later moved to Smithers, West Virginia. Known to be smart and ambitious, he began working as a driver and then later launched his own trucking company. One day, he walked into a local store and met the owner's daughter, Jenny Caprini, who had come over from Italy when she was three. It was love at first sight. They married and had ten children between 1923 and 1943 and settled in Fayetteville, West Virginia an Appalachian town with a small but active Italian immigrant community. The Sauters were well respected around town and George held strong opinions about everything from business to current events and politics. He never explained what had happened in Italy to make him move to America. That fateful evening in 1945, the siblings' older brother John, 23, George Jr., 16, 
and their father had gone to bed early, tired after a long day working at the family's coal trucking business. The younger children, however, were allowed to stay up late to play with the toys that their older sister Marion had given them for Christmas. Their mother took the youngest child, two-year-old Sylvia, to bed with her at approximately 10.30, telling Maurice and Louis to attend to the cows and chickens before they headed off to bed for the night. The eldest of the Sauter children, Joe, 21, had been discharged from the army the day before and was the only one of the ten Sauter children not at home. At about 1 a.m., Jenny suddenly bolted out of bed and instantly knew something was wrong. She could smell smoke, and when she turned her head, she saw the flames in her husband's office, which is where the phone was located. She ran and told Marion, who had fallen asleep on the sofa, to take Sylvia outside, while she and George frantically tried to rescue the other children. George Jr. and John who said he woke his siblings, but later updated his statement saying that he had only shouted at them, ran downstairs, hair singed and terrified. Fire engulfed the staircase to the attic where the other children slept, preventing George from going upstairs to attempt to rescue them. As he frantically tried to figure out what to do, George realized that he could not hear the children screaming or crying out in fear. He heard no noise at all coming from the children's rooms. The fact that no one had heard them crying was one of the reasons the Sodders later believed they might not have been in their bedroom at all. George desperately began thinking of other ways to get to his children and save them from the terrible fate that faced them. He was thwarted by two of many unusual circumstances that night. First, a ladder that always stood by the house, suddenly wasn't there. When he looked around for it, he couldn't see it anywhere. Next, he and his sons then tried to move his trucks against the house, hoping to reach the upper floor by standing on top of them. But although they worked fine earlier in the day, they couldn't get them started. All the family could do is watch as the fire destroyed the five-room house with their children trapped inside. After 45 minutes, only the building's foundation remained. Marion sprinted to a neighbor's home to call the Fayetteville Fire Department but could not get any response. A neighbor who saw the fire made a call from a nearby tavern but again, no response. Unsure what else to do but wanting to help, the neighbor immediately drove into town and found Fire Chief F.J. Morris, who initiated Fayetteville's version of a fire alarm. A phone tree system where one firefighter phoned another, who then phoned the next, and so on and so forth. The fire department was only two and a half miles away, but the crew didn't arrive until 8 a.m., seven whole hours later, by which point the Sodder's home had been reduced to a pile of smoldering ashes. George and Jenny assumed that five of their children were dead, being trapped in the fire, but a brief search of the grounds on Christmas Day turned up no trace of remains. 
Chief Morris suggested that the blaze must have been so hot that it completely cremated the bodies. A state police inspector combed the rubble and attributed the fire to faulty wiring. George covered the basement with five feet of dirt, intending to preserve the site as a memorial. The coroner's office issued five death certificates just before the new year, with the cause of death being fire or suffocation. As the Sodders planted flowers across the space where their house had stood as a memorial, they began to piece together a series of strange moments leading up to the fire. A few months earlier, back in the fall, there was a stranger who appeared at the home asking if George had any hauling work. As the two were talking, they wandered around to the back of the house where the man suddenly pointed to two separate fuse boxes and said, this is gonna cause a fire someday. George thought that was odd as he had just had the wiring checked by the local power company who said it was in fine condition. Around the same time, Another man tried to sell the family life insurance and became angry when George and Jenny declined. Your goddamn house is going up in smoke, he warned, and your children are going to be destroyed. You are going to be paid for the dirty remarks you have been making about Mussolini. George was indeed outspoken about his dislike for the Italian dictator, occasionally engaging in heated arguments with other members of Fayetteville's Italian community, but at the time, he didn't take the man's threats seriously. The older Sodder sons also recalled something peculiar. Just before Christmas, they noticed a man parked along the highway watching the younger children as they came home from school. Around 12.30 Christmas morning, after the children had opened a few presents and everyone had gone to sleep, the shrill ringing of the telephone broke the quiet that had settled over the home. Jenny rushed to answer it. She then heard an unfamiliar female voice who asked for an unfamiliar name. There was laughter and glasses clinking in the background. Jenny said, you have the wrong number, and hung up. Tiptoeing back to bed, she noticed that all of the downstairs lights were still on and the curtains were open. The front door was also unlocked. She saw Marion asleep on the sofa in the living room and assumed that the other kids were all upstairs in bed. She turned out the lights, closed the curtains, locked the door, and returned to her room. She had just begun to fall back asleep when she heard one sharp, loud bang on the roof and then a rolling noise. Less than an hour later, she was awoken again, this time by the heavy smoke curling into her room. Jenny couldn't understand how five children could perish in a fire and leave no bones, no flesh, just nothing. She conducted her own experiments, burning animal bones to see if the fire consumed them. Each time, she was left with a heap of charred bones. She knew that remnants of various household appliances had been found in the burned-out basement, still identifiable. If these were not reduced to ash, 
why would the children's remains be? An employee at a crematorium informed her that bones remain after bodies are burned for two hours at 2,000 degrees. Their house was destroyed in 45 minutes, less than half that time. The collection of strange moments only continued to grow. A telephone repairman told the Sodders that upon inspection, their lines appeared to have been cut, not burned. If the phone line was cut, how did Jenny receive the strange phone call? The official report had stated that the fire had been the result of faulty wiring. If so, the power would have been dead, so how to explain the lighted downstairs rooms before Jenny went back to bed? A witness came forward and reported that he saw a man at the scene of the fire taking a block and tackle used for removing car engines. Could he be the reason that George's trucks refused to start? One day, while the family was visiting the site, Sylvia found a hard rubber object in the yard. Jenny suddenly remembered that loud thud on the roof she had heard and then the rolling sound. George concluded it was a napalm pineapple bomb. After all these strange reports and findings, came the reports of sightings of the children. One woman claimed to have seen the missing children peering from a passing car while the fire was in progress. Another woman who worked at a tourist shop between Fayetteville and Charleston, 50 miles west, told police that on the morning after the fire, she served them breakfast. She also told police that she saw a car with Florida license plates at the tourist court. Later on, another report was made by a woman at a Charleston hotel. She was looking at the newspaper and saw the children's photos and said she had seen four of the five children a week after the fire. She claimed that the children were accompanied by two women and two men, all of Italian descent. She said in a statement, I do not remember the exact date, however, the entire party did register at the hotel and stayed in a large room with several beds. They registered about midnight. I tried to talk to the children in a friendly manner but the men appeared hostile and refused to allow me to talk to these children. One of the men looked at me in a hostile manner. He turned around and began talking rapidly in Italian. Immediately, the whole party stopped talking to me. I sensed that I was being frozen out, and so I said nothing more. They left early the next morning. In 1947, George and Jenny, still at a loss, as to what happened to their children, sent a letter about the case to the Federal Bureau of Investigation asking for help. They received a reply from J. Edgar Hoover in which he stated that it was a local matter and not under the jurisdiction of the FBI. Agents agreed to assist if they were given permission from the local authorities but the Fayetteville police and fire departments declined to ask for any assistance. Not sure where to turn next, the Sodders hired a private investigator named C.C. Tinsley. 
One of the first things he discovered was that the insurance salesman who had threatened George earlier on was a member of the coroner's jury that deemed the fire accidental for the official report. He was also told an interesting story from a Fayetteville minister about F.J. Morris, the fire chief. Although Morris had claimed no remains were found in the aftermath of the fire, he supposedly confided that he'd discovered a heart in the ashes. He admitted that he hid it inside a dynamite box and buried it at the scene. Tinsley spoke with Morris and eventually persuaded him to show him where the box was buried. Together, they dug it up and took it straight to a local funeral director, who concluded it was in fact beef liver, untouched by the fire. Soon afterwards, the Sodders began to hear rumors that the fire chief confided in others that the contents of the box had not been found in the fire at all. He had buried the beef liver in the rubble in the hope that finding any remains would placate the family enough to stop the investigation. Over the next few years, the tips and leads continued to pour in. George saw a newspaper photo of school children in New York City and was utterly convinced that one of them was his daughter Betty. He drove all the way to Manhattan in search of the child, but when he finally got there, her parents refused to speak to him. In August 1949, the Sodders decided it was time to mount a new search at the fire scene. They brought in a Washington, D.C. pathologist named Oscar B. Hunter. The excavation was thorough, uncovering several small objects damaged coins, a partly burned dictionary, and several shards of vertebrae. Hunter sent the bones to the Smithsonian Institution, which issued a report stating that the vertebrae all belonged to one individual who was most likely anywhere in the age range of 16 to 22, and were untouched by the fire. They were not believed to be that of the eldest solder child, Maurice, who was 14 at the time of the fire. The reports also stated that since the house only burned for less than an hour, one would expect to find full skeletons of the missing children, instead of only four fragments of vertebrae. These bones, the report concluded, were most likely in the supply of dirt George used to fill in the basement to create the memorial for his children. The Smithsonian report prompted two hearings at the Capitol in Charleston, after which Governor Oki L. Patterson and State Police Superintendent W. E. Burchett told the Sodders their search was hopeless and declared the case officially closed. Undeterred by this decision, George and Jenny erected the billboard along Route 16 and passed out flyers offering a $5,000 reward for information leading to the recovery of their children. Shortly after, the amount was increased to $10,000. 
A letter arrived from a woman in St. Louis stating that the oldest girl, Martha, was living in a convent there. Another tip came in from Texas, where a patron in a bar overheard a conversation about a long-ago Christmas Eve fire in West Virginia. Yet another report came in from Florida that claimed that the children were staying with a distant relative of Jenny's. Whenever these tips would come in, George would travel across the country to investigate each lead, but every time, he would return home with his heart still broken and no closer to the truth. One day, in 1968, more than 20 years after the fire, Jenny received an envelope addressed only to her. It was postmarked in Kentucky, but had no return address. Inside the envelope was a photo of a man who appeared to be in his mid-twenties. On the back of the photo, a cryptic handwritten note read, Louis Sauter, I love Brother Frankie, Lil Boys, A90132 or 35. As she and George stared at the photo, they could not deny the resemblance to their son Louis, who was nine at the time of the fire. Beyond the obvious similarities, dark curly hair and dark brown eyes, the person in the photo had the same straight strong nose, the same upward tilt of the left eyebrow. After receiving this photo, they once again hired a private detective and sent him to Kentucky to see if they could locate the man in the photo. Sadly, they never heard from him again. The Sodders feared that if they were to publish the note or the name of the town on the postmark that their son might be harmed. Instead, they updated the billboard to include the updated picture they believed to be Lewis. George died a year later, still wondering where his children were, and hoping for a break in the case. Jenny erected a fence around her property and began adding rooms to her home, slowly building layer after layer between her and the outside world. She had worn black exclusively as a sign of mourning, and continued to do so until her own death in 1989. The billboard finally came down. Her children and grandchildren continued the investigation and came up with theories of their own. Had the local mafia tried to recruit George and he declined? Had someone tried to extort money from George and he refused? Were the children kidnapped by someone they knew? Someone who had burst into the unlocked front door? told them about the fire and offered to take them someplace safe? Or maybe they really did not survive the night. If they had, and if they lived for decades, if it really was Lewis in that photograph, why did they fail to contact their parents? Was it because they wanted to protect them? The youngest solder child, Sylvia, passed away in 2021, still believing that her siblings did not die in the fire, 
and were alive out in the world somewhere. She had said many times that her very first memories are of that night in 1945, when she was two years old. She said she would never forget the sight of her father bleeding or the terrible sounds of everyone's screams as their house burned to the ground. If the missing Sauter children truly did survive the fire, the youngest Betty would be 84 years old, Jenny 87, Louis 88, Martha 91, and Maurice would be 93 years old this year. What really happened to the Sauter children that night? Will we ever get an answer? Or will it forever remain a mystery? Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the Nocturnal Mysteries podcast. I will be back in two weeks' time with a new episode for you. If you would like to keep up with the show, you can follow me on Instagram at Nocturnal Mysteries Pod, TikTok at Nocturnal Mysteries, or on X at Noct Mist Pod. After the episode releases, make sure to check out the show's TikTok as I usually post a video with pictures of the site or what I was talking about. If you have anything you would like to hear me cover on the show, please don't hesitate to reach out on social media and let me know. Also, I am honored to be a part of Bad Secret Media with one of my personal favorite podcasts, The Secret Levels Podcast. You can go to badsecretmedia.com to find all the information on all the shows under the Bad Secret Media umbrella. If you would like to support the show, the best thing you can do is rate or review the show wherever you listen to it. This will help others find the show and share in the spooky with us. All episodes are researched and written by myself and edited by the man behind the mysteries, the show's executive producer, Toby Von Doom. The show would not be what it is without all the hard work he does with all of his editing magic. You can find him on social media at Toby Von Doom. Until next time, stay curious, stay weird, stay kind, and before leaving the board, don't forget to always say goodbye.